To conclude this program, we return to Dr. Vinuk, who reviewed a number of papers in colorectal cancer, beginning with a meeting plenary presentation by Dr. Eric Van Kutsum, evaluating the correlation of KRAS mutation status and clinical response to cetuximab with fulfiri as first-line therapy of metastatic disease in the so-called CRYSTAL trial. The clinical outcomes were reported a year ago. This is a study in patients untreated for advanced colorectal cancer, randomly assigned to Fulfury with or without cetuximab. So it's a first-line cetuximab question. A year ago, we learned that there was a superior progression-free survival for the patients who had cetuximab. Overall survival data not in, a toxicity profile as you might expect. What was reported this year was a subset analysis of patients based on their KRAS status. So in the last couple of years, there's been an evolution of data, most of which is retrospective, suggesting that the epidermal growth factor receptor antibodies are effective or not effective based on the KRAS status. KRAS is a gene that can be mutated. It's a downstream gene from the epidermal growth factor receptor pathway, and it's been observed in other studies that patients whose tumors were mutant for KRAS did not get benefit from cetuximab. That's not been shown yet in frontline, but this study basically confirms these other studies in the first-line setting, and that is the data suggested that patients who were wild-type for KRAS when cetuximab was added, had a greater response rate than the Volfiri alone patients and had an improved progression-free survival that was a bit more noteworthy than was seen in the whole group without relation to KRAS status. In contrast, patients whose tumors were mutant for KRAS neither had an increased response rate nor had a progression-free survival increment. In fact, although not statistically significant, Patients with mutant KRAS appear to have even a somewhat shorter progression-free survival when they received cetuximab than when they got Fulfury alone. So this study, in conjunction with uh, six or seven previously reported studies, as well as with a couple of other studies presented at ASCO this year, pretty much clarifies the circumstance in which you would use these antibodies, and that would be in patients whose tumors are wild-type KRAS. Now, what fraction of patients have the KRAS mutation? So the frequency of KRAS mutation depends on the series. In this study, they didn't look at all the KRAS. They didn't have specimens on all the patients. It was about 45% were mutant KRAS and 55% were wild type. The studies more or less suggest somewhere between a third and a half of patients have mutated KRAS. The test itself can be done on paraffin tissue. It doesn't need to be a fresh biopsy. These studies, and almost every study, has looked at the primary tumor as opposed to the metastatic disease, and it does appear to be concordance between the primary and the metastasis. Any way to sort of get a feel for if you compare cetuximab in the first-line setting utilizing this tool of pulling out the patient, so sort of decreasing the denominator, how the data there might compare to what you see with bevacizumab. Of course, your trial is actually trying to look at that. Right. So my trial, CLGB-SWOG80405, is really asking that question and is being amended to include only patients with wild-type KRAS. Certainly, it's always dangerous to do cross-trial comparisons, but if you look in parallel, the full-fury cetuximab patients really appear to do 
as well in frontline when they're wild-type KRAS as the patients receiving bevacizumab combinations in frontline. Even a little better, perhaps, but again, you have to be very cautious about comparing these different arms. Certainly, this suggests that if you enrich your population for based on KRAS status, you might very well markedly enhance the outcome, at least in that subset. And is this something that you have done yourself in a non-protocol setting prior to this? Are you planning on doing it? Do you think it should be part of practice? I think it should be part of practice. At our institution, we've been studying and had studies look sort of governed by KRAS status for the last year and a half or two years. The commercial assay is available, and I believe the FDA will probably be looking into changing the label to mandate that this KRAS status be determined. So I do think that many academic centers have already started doing this, and I believe this will soon now be a community standard. The test is a polymerase chain reaction, a PCR-based test that looks at specific mutations in exons 12 and 13. So, you know, it's a special molecular assay that is a send-out. The turnaround time is somewhere between five to eight days. So immunohistochemistry is not informative for these mutations. Any comments on Gail Eckert's discussion of this paper? I think Gail did an excellent discussion of this, and pretty much as I just discussed, she also showed a fair bit of the other data in support of this observation. As a single standalone study, this is not a compelling story, but when you look at six or seven very comparable sets of results, it sort of adds up. And she more or less said that she believes the FDA should review this and probably the time has come to integrate this into our clinical algorithm. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the oral presentations on colorectal cancer that were done at the meeting, starting out with Norm Walmark's presentation of NSABP co 7 study looking at FLOX. Right. So this is a study we've moved on from this study. This is a study that compares 5-FU leucovorin to sort of an NSABP version of Folfox with a bolus regimen of 5-FU as opposed to an infusional regimen of 5-FU. The results of this have been reported already in terms of disease-free survival. And what Walmart reported is an update on disease-free survival and does it translate into overall survival. And numerically, these results look almost identical to the Folfox data from the Mosaic trial that certainly justify the standard use of Folfox. You'll remember that Flox is a more toxic regimen than Folfox and certainly probably doesn't have a place in general usage. So this was not new news, it was confirmatory news. The interesting thing is how the numbers track with the Mosaic And again, these patients had about two-thirds the dose of oxaliplatin as the patients in Mosaic, given in a different way, but may lend credibility to the issue of do we need to give 12 doses of oxaliplatin. The other interesting finding, which was also seen in the Mosaic, is that you need to follow these patients out quite a long way to look for a survival advantage. And in the FLOX and CO7, there was not an overall survival advantage, even at five, six, seven years suggesting that because of the second treatment options that are available for these patients, overall survival, so far at least, has not changed because those patients who relapse live a long time with their recurrence. So you may need more follow-up. In Mosaic, it took seven years of follow-up to demonstrate a survival advantage. Another presentation that came out of the NSABP was the initial safety report 
of NSABP C08, looking at full Fox plus or minus BEV. Of course, we're waiting anxiously for the efficacy data that hopefully will be out, I guess, sometime in the next year. But what did they report here in terms of safety? Right. And we now have a host of patients who've received bevacizumab for a year. Recall this study was full Fox versus full Fox BEV for six months and then an additional six months of bevacizumab. And the long and the short of it is there were really no dramatic findings in the bevacizumab arm. There was no increased risk of stroke or heart attack or bowel perforations. The wound complications were slightly greater, but not really significant. I thought it was particularly interesting that they didn't see bowel perforations. Right. I do think it's interesting. And again, these are patients without metastatic disease, It may turn out that much of the cause of bowel perforation is metastatic peritoneal disease, although that's not clear. I would emphasize that my view is this safety profile is very encouraging, but I think you need to follow patients three, four, five years to make sure they don't have some long-term consequences of a year of bevacizumab. They're doing that in NSABP. We just don't have enough follow-up to comment on it. Let's talk a little bit about the paper that was presented looking at calcium and magnesium in terms of oxaliplatin neuropathy. There were two papers presented on calcium and magnesium which were very interesting. One was from the NCCTG by Niksevich, and this is a study that was a randomized phase 3 placebo-controlled study in patients with stage 3 colon cancer who were getting full FOX chemotherapy who were randomly assigned to receive calcium and magnesium or not for the theoretical prevention of neuropathy, of neurotoxicity. There's another study in advanced disease patients called the CONCEPT trial that also asked the neuropathy prevention question with calcium and magnesium in advanced disease patients, and it was complicated by an intermittent or continuous schedule of oxaliplatin. Now, both of these studies were closed prematurely, closed early, after an interim analysis in the advanced disease study suggested there was a lower response rate for patients receiving calcium and magnesium. And, of course, that sent up a red flag that there was a potential harmful result in terms of efficacy. The studies were closed, and then the data was all analyzed. So the adjuvant study, the first study to talk about, which again is patients getting full FOX with or without calcium and magnesium in the adjuvant setting, there's no efficacy endpoints yet. So we don't know if there was a compromise in efficacy, and it was probably too small to see. It was only 50 patients in each arm. But they did demonstrate a decrease in grade 3, 4 neuropathy in patients who got calcium and magnesium, as did The other study, the CONCEPT trial, although it too was stopped early, it's not so much a prevention of all neuropathy, but at least based on what they've shown so far, it moved patients from more severe neuropathy to lesser neuropathy. Still not a lot of long-term follow-up to know if it disappears, where these patients wind up. But it actually does suggest that calcium and magnesium is a reasonable preventative agent or protectant agent and may mitigate the neuropathy, which is a big problem. Problem with Folfox adjuvant is patients, many develop neuropathy, and in some cases it gets much worse even after the oxaliplatin is discontinued. The issue is, was there a reason to be cautious based on this efficacy debate? 
And uh, it turns out, again, in the advanced disease study, that there was no difference in efficacy when all was said and done. We don't yet know in the adjuvant setting. So, you know, should we or should we not routinely use calcium and magnesium, acknowledging that neuropathy is a big problem for many patients? I think in the advanced disease setting, it's probably perfectly reasonable. In the adjuvant setting, I'm not sure. We don't know if they're equally efficacious. We won't know from this study because it was too small. But it is interesting. Many of us thought that calcium magnesium would prevent cold sensitivity, but not neuropathy, and yet this study suggests otherwise. At our center, actually, we've gone back in and put the templates for calcium magnesium back in the chemotherapy profile because we do believe that it's reasonable and we'll start using it again in advanced disease patients. Another conclusion or issue in the concept trial that Axel Grothy presented was the issue of the so-called Optimox-type approach, you know, intermittent therapy. Can you talk about what he discussed there? This was, again, because of the complexity, I'm not exactly sure we can conclude what Axel concluded, although the data does suggest that the intermittent oxaliplatin patients didn't compromise their outcome compared to the continuous oxaliplatin patients. And in fact, the intermittent oxaliplatin appeared to be associated with a significant improvement of time-to-treatment failure. Time-to-treatment failure is an endpoint that looks at either progressive disease or change therapy to a different therapy. And so it's muddied a little by neuropathy. When patients come off for neuropathy from oxaliplatin, that's a point of time of treatment failure. So assuming patients don't progress abnormally quickly in the intermittent oxaliplatin arm, you'd expect them to have a superior time to treatment failure, and they did. So one of the concerns has been that if you interrupt oxaliplatin, do you lose some benefit? And this study suggested that you do not. Again, the problem in this study is a lot of moving parts, and it too was closed early. So I'm not sure that it's powered to answer some of the questions. But again, the main take-home message, and I think most oncologists acknowledge this now, if you use oxaliplatin continuously, you will need to stop it for toxicity, oftentimes before it's run out of its efficacy. I'd like to get your take on a paper I was certainly curious to see, which is a study, the so-called Cairo 2 study. I'm sure you were particularly interested in that one, too, given your study. This is a very interesting and important study, although still, as with many studies, this is early data, and you need to be cautious in over-interpreting it. This Cairo 2 was done in the Netherlands, and this is a study randomly assigned patients to capecitabine, oxaliplatin, bevacizumab, versus that combination with cetuximab. So it essentially asks the double biological question. Which, of course, you're asking also which in your we're study. asking in 80405. And this study, the long story short, in all the patients without subsetting for KRAS status, there was no marked difference in outcome. So this was sort of a negative study in terms of the double biologic conferring a superior outcome in unselected patients. The sort of surprising finding is in mutant KRAS patients, which comprised about 45 or 50 percent of the patients, those with mutant KRAS had an inferior outcome when they had the double biologic compared to Kpox bevacizumab alone. And it was a pretty strikingly inferior outcome 
for those patients. Again, overall, there was no difference, but if you just looked at the mutant KRAS patients, the progression-free survival difference was 12.5 versus 8.6 months, which is a real market difference favoring the non-cetuximab arm. In contrast, again, in the wild type, there was no difference in progression-free survival. So if this is accurate and turns out to be held up with more analysis of the data, one, in wild-type patients, a double biologic may not be superior to the single biologic. So Bev plus cetuximab is not better than bevacizumab alone with chemotherapy. And more data suggesting that mutant KRAS patients shouldn't be getting cetuximab. In this case, they may do worse than patients not getting cetuximab. The flaws in this study, first of all, this is all progression-free survival data. The overall survival estimates are no difference, although, again, this is early to be drawing that conclusion. In this study was investigator-assessed, and while there's no intention to deceive, you really need to be cautious about rushing to judgment on progression-free survival data as judged by investigators. There is inherently a lot of bias in deciding whether a patient progresses or not. It can go in either direction, and I hold that up as sort of a warning. However, the sum of this data really raises the question whether the double biologics will be better than the single biologic. Any reason to speculate why cetuximab would have a negative impact in these wild type? Well, so the answer is we could guess or speculate. One possibility is that oxaliplatin doesn't play well with the biological agents and that somehow you interfere with the oxaliplatin efficacy. There are, for example, if you look at Folfox cetuximab studies, for example, and you look at patients who don't get a skin rash, as was seen, let's say, in the OPIS trial, those patients do much worse than other patients in other studies just getting Folfox alone, suggesting that there may be some biological inhibition of the activity of oxaliplatin. Purely speculative, don't know. I think, you know, this kind of study with full theory would be very informative to know if the same results are parallel with full theory. There is a little bit of data that we're told will come out on the PACE study, which looked at panitumumab and not cetuximab, but otherwise sort of same question, double biologics or bevacizumab alone. And that study apparently also shows some inferior, we're told, will show a similar pattern in terms of inferiority with the double biologics in mutant KRAS. So I think it just goes to show you how little we understand about these pathways and how they interact with chemotherapy. As with every capecitabine oxaliplatin study, the toxicity, the dose intensity, all of these things need to be ascertained. But on the surface, this study really does raise great question about the viability of the double biologics. Again, my study is currently designed to answer that double biologic question, and we're hoping to do so in wild-type KRAS patients, although we're caucusing in the next month or so to determine if perhaps this data tells us the double biologics is not an arm we should be testing. Clearly, the critical question remains cetuximab versus bevacizumab in frontline in wild-type KRAS, and it may be that the double biologics 
seemed really good, a great idea, but may not be a benefit. And it's not certain that we're going to follow this study to the end. I will say a word about the OPUS study. OPUS, which I alluded to, was a Folfox with or without cetuximab in first line. OPUS, again, shows very similar results to Crystal in terms of the KRAS status predicting for efficacy or not. So that was an important confirmatory study. There's another study, a very interesting study by Sabine Tejpar, that was the Everest study. This was the study from Merck KGA that sort of looked at dosing patients with cetuximab until they developed a skin rash. And this study did suggest that the benefit accrued to wild-type KRAS patients, and that if you got dose-intense in wild-type patients, you might have gotten a little bit more benefit. It's a pilot study insofar as generating the hypothesis that it may be fruitful to take wild-type patients and dose them to rash. Again, that needs to be validated subsequently. I think the other colorectal data, the posters were mostly updates of the BRIGHT and BEAT registries for bevacizumab. And I'm hesitant to really make a lot of these. These are interesting observations on the use of bevacizumab, the risk of bleeding, the risk of liver complications. But it's a registry, and so I think you're limited in what you can say. The take-home message, more or less, is that bevacizumab is globally safe and doesn't appear to cause major complications as it's used clinically. I think that that whole initiative has been interesting in terms of the fact that, in general, it looks like the side effects and toxicity profile that's been seen in the community is very similar to what was seen in clinical trials. That's absolutely true. The warning, and I not to diminish that comment or that finding, but of course, doctors participating in the registry are more in tune with when and when not to use bevacizumab. But I do agree that it's very reassuring that, at least in these populations, and the results actually, patients do spectacularly well compared to clinical trials. They're a bit selected, perhaps, but I agree with you. Within those limits, it's a very important finding. And I happen to believe that registries are immensely important for following the usage of these drugs and gathering more toxicity and complication data. I guess also generating the thoughts for clinical trials, an example being the IBET study and what was reported last year. Absolutely. I think these registries can identify new questions that merit answering. And you're referring to the bright data from a year ago, where in the admittedly not randomized patient population, the issue of continuing bevacizumab beyond progression as you move to second line you know, data that is stunning with a 31-month median overall survival in the registry patients who continued bevacizumab, acknowledging these are selected. It's not a randomized sampling, but clearly justifies exploring this with a study, which is what's being done. Any comments on this oral VEGF inhibitor, sidirinib? They're trying to compare it to Bev? Well, you know, many of us certainly believe that if we had an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor, it would be potentially preferable to bevacizumab and not requiring every other week IVs. It may be a bit less expensive. It's all about the pharmacokinetics. There was a similar tyrosine kinase inhibitor a few years ago called velatinib that failed because it wasn't dosed correctly. This sidirinib actually does look interesting, and I do think it's got some potential legs in terms of being an oral 
VEGF inhibitor that could move into play. The trick, of course, is doing the randomized phase 3 study to prove equivalence to bevacizumab, and that's not an easy task.